to the podcast of the European Society of Anesthesiology and Intensive Care. I am your host, Professor Karen Weiniger from the Tel Aviv Zaraski Medical Center in Tel Aviv, Israel. Today, we will be speaking about dogmas that challenge us in obstetric anesthesia. And we have invited Dr. Amelia Guash from the La Paz Medical Center in Madrid. She is a council member of the WFSA and of the Obstetric Anesthesia Committee. Welcome. Hello, good morning, everyone. Thank you very much for inviting me to speak about challenging dogmas in obstetric anesthesia. And thank you, Caroline, for this kind invitation. We will try to solve them. We will try to solve them. So we know that dogmas are everywhere in medicine and in, also in obstetric anesthesia. Dogmas are a belief and they're quite well ground, so they might be difficult to change. But for common sense, we have our protocols, our consensus documents, and we also have our minimum standards in obstetric anesthesia that can help us. So we're going to talk today about dogmas that anesthesiologists may use to base their practice on and dogmas that our colleagues or patients may believe to base their decisions on. So the first dogma that I want to discuss with you, Dr. Gauch, is what anesthesiologists think. How low can we really go for performing a labor epidural analgesia when I'm talking about platelet levels? Yes, thank you, Caroline. As you mentioned, science is evolving all the time and challenging dogmas is a part of our scientific work and a part of our human progress. Relating to thrombocytopenia, uh, we cannot say an absolute number. And uh, we are always concerned about the level of uh, platelets that are safe to perform an eruxal block. In the last few years, recent publications have come out challenging this dogma with data. And the absolute risk of epidural spinal hematoma is not well studied if the platelet count is below 100,000 or the, that uh, number that it's, um, well, uh, not uh, an absolute number or even below 70 or 50,000. It is a contextual decision, depending on women's characteristics, preeclampsia, the speed of decrease, or any other condition. Challenging this dogma uh, allows a better information for women at risk and tailoring the risks and benefits. The risks and benefits of regional anesthesia versus general anesthesia in case of cesarean delivery. Preeclamptic women may be better managed with epidurals and the risk of having an epidural for labor analgesia or CSE for cesarean delivery may be better, better than having a risk for cesarean delivery under general anesthesia. So as you mentioned, common sense and data are important for this. I'd like to mention Dr. Lee work published in Anesthesiology in 2017 and Dr. Levy work related to this particular topic in International Journal of Obstetric Anesthesia in 2018. However, protocols for women who refuse, who refuse epidurals or when they are contraindicated because a very low platelet count should be available. Minorities in our, in our environment have to be respected and they have to write to receive analgesia, even if it's not as effective as epidural analgesia. So you mentioned evidence and the numbers seem to be 
becoming more permissive. So if somebody yes. comes along and says, no, I will not do an epidural because my patient has, be, um, has below 100,000 platelets, what do we tell them? We have also, you've mentioned some literature, we also have the recent SOAP consensus statement about thrombocytopenia in pregnancy. What should we tell our colleagues to help them to embrace the new evidence that these dogmas should have evolved and that our practice should update itself? I think we have to talk to the patients to discuss the, the individual risks and to mention this new evidence that come from this two important works from Lee and Levy, 2017 and 18, and to mention that the risk is not as high as it may be thought if the platelet count is over 50 or even over 70,000. So if the lady insists not to have an epidural analgesia, we have to offer different alternatives to relief, uh, for pain relief. So I think we can summarize from the latest evidence that we have that 70 is the new 100. We can even go down as low as 50 and possibly even lower in order to avoid general anesthesia and to provide optimum analgesia for our patients. Would that summarize? Yes, it perfectly summarizes. Thank you very much, Caroline. So let's move on to another dogma. You perform a spinal anesthesia for your patient undergoing a cesarean delivery, and she's quickly placed on her back, and the bed is tilted by putting something under her um, right butter, maybe a bag of saline or a, or a wedge, um, to reduce aortocaval compression. Is this how we should be managing spinal hypotension today? No, the, the management of uh, spinal hypertension in the context of a cesarean delivery has changed uh, slightly and importantly in the last two decades. Uh, I'd say that uh, we all believed that uh, 15 degrees of left lateral tilt would be enough to relieve orthocouple compression, but it's not. There is a very nice study from, the, from Japan that introduced women in a magnetic resonance with, and they tried to give a 15 degrees and they realized that orthocaval compression was not released with uh, that degree of compression. It would be necessary 30 degrees to relieve completely the orthocaval compression. Uh, however, it has been, uh, I have to add also that the attention to hypertension for spinal anesthesia for cesarean delivery was uh, focused in the previous decades in preload and now it's much more focused in afterload and the use of vasopressors. So it is not so important the degree or the maintenance of a lateral tilt as it used to be uh, two decades ago. Now it is more important to use the right vasopressor to the right uh, patient at the right moment. So our best way to avoid spinal hypotension is to anticipate it and not just with the tilt, if we're still believing that that should be used, but preload and preemptive use of vasopressors, right? Yes, that that's good. absolutely right. Okay, what about um, other dogmas related to anesthetic for cesarean? Do you give opioids to a woman who has an unavoidable general anesthetic prior to delivery of the baby? 
some people may say that that's not the way we should be doing our anesthetic. Yes, I know what uh, what you mean. Um, in many hospitals, including very important hospitals, for example in Brazil or in other parts uh, of the of our world, they use opioids normally for a cesarean delivery under general anesthesia. Uh, we don't use them routinely. We use them only for high-risk patients because we think that the risk-benefit balance favors the use of opioids, particularly if we think that fetal circulation allows a first-step metabolism of opioids in the fetus. So despite the high liposolubility of opioids, babies may remain awake while mothers, especially these high-risk mothers, preclamptive women or any other risk women, may have their brains protected when they are under general anesthesia. What I think it's a very good risk balance. Intraoperative awareness is also a concern in this context, and it may be decreased with the use of opioids and also the use of hypnotic drugs that may uh, reduce the incidence of that. So I, I would agree with that summary. And I, um, when I perform a general anesthetic, when it's unavoidable for cesarean delivery, I will administer opioids prior to in intubation, just as you've described. What about antacids? Should we be giving these to everybody before a cesarean delivery? I think this practice has been changing along this uh, last years and even last two decades as the probability of general anesthesia is lower than ever. Uh, the standards have to be uh, remained before 5%, even in emergency cesarean delivery. Our protocols have to look also to efficiency and uh, general uh, prophylaxis with antiacids does not uh, seem uh, efficient. Several papers from uh, Dr. Van der Velde and Dr. Jose Carvalho support that. And there is another uh, document that has been published by EBA and uh, ESAIC members with, uh, that it's called Euromistoban, uh, European Minimum Standards in Aesthetic Anesthesia, that challenged this particular uh, dogma as cricket pressure, awareness, and acid prophylaxis. Task for documents may help also to decide uh, that anti-acid prophylaxis should not be used routinely anymore. So we recently had a discussion about that on a WhatsApp group that while anti-acid prophylaxis still remains with um, evidence as something that should be administered, it's not really given by obstetric anesthesiologists today. Yes. You mentioned Euromistaban and, and some dogmas that appear there, and you mentioned cricoid pressure. Should we be using cricoid pressure? when we do a rapid sequence induction in our pregnant women going cesarean delivery? Well, it's, uh, it's another important challenge and uh, it's a matter of discussion in our hospitals and in our delivery rooms for more conservative uh, positions to more innovative positions. Cricoid pressure uh, increases the difficulty of uh, intubation. If it's maintained as it is recommended until the end of the intubation procedure, so uh, cricket pressure um, is not as effective as we may uh, think, and it can be even a, an additional difficulty for uh, routine intubation in patients uh, under general anesthesia for cesarean delivery. So I think it is not so useful. 
and even this, uh, this dogma comes from the 60s and the 70s, where people were under general anesthesia, women were under general anesthesia for uh, cesarean delivery much more often than now. So we've discussed a number of dogmas that our colleague anesthesiologists may believe, and some you've presented some of the science where um, we may go to update our practice. What about our patients or our colleagues? They also have some dogmas. And one that strikes my mind that I frequently hear, and it drives me crazy when I hear it, is that labor epidural analgesia causes cesarean delivery. What do you think about that? Well, um, it's a useful conversation, not only among our colleagues, it's only it's also when you go to the hairdresser or you go to any shop, everyone speaks about their epidural or what they feel or what it happens. But uh, we have to lead the evidence in this particular field. And now, speaking seriously, now we have different uh, big studies during the last decade that do not support that uh, obstetric uh, um, epidural analgesia for labor is increasing the incidence of uh, siren delivery or instrumental delivery because uh, it's uh, based on uh, all the studies that use high local anesthetic concentrations. So challenging this dogma is really important as new techniques new epidural, DPE, CSE, new drugs, and new regimes of maintenance of neuraxial labor analgesia allows us, the obstetric anesthetists, to collaborate to a cesarean delivery or instrumental delivery rate lower than it used to be. And there are no differences between a normal epidural and non-epidural. And uh, I repeat, we have to lead the evidence and review for other colleagues and for general population. So where, where do our women get the information from the epidurals of prolonging labor and causing cesarean delivery? And how do we get the information out to our patients so they have the most updated information? I think we have to involve much more than we are used to do to the, the patients' groups. Uh, women uh, are mm, customers more than patients in most of uh, the, the occasions, most of times, and we have to involve them more than uh, we used to do in the mm, decision-making for labor analgesia and for the general procedures for, for prosthetics. Yeah, I would agree with that. There are certain conditions where we really would like the patient to take an epidural, right? For example, if she's got preeclampsia or if she's having a trial of labor after cesarean delivery, and she may have been told, or our colleagues may believe that, for example, if she's having trial of labor after cesarean, that an epidural can mask the a uterine rupture. And these dogmas can really hinder our optimum care. I think we have to, to do the same work with women, with obstetricians, as with the general population, spreading the information, the scientific evidence to demonstrate that this, um, these thoughts are based in old uh, publications and the solution is updating protocols to the new evidence. So in our um, 
current practice, we have a one size fits all strategy, right? That all yeah. women who come in, they'll get the same epidural, they'll get the same spinal, they'll get the same preload. Give us a glimpse into the future and some of the dogmas that we might be facing, that we might need to update as the science evolves. Yeah, well, that's an amazing field in our specialty. That's, uh, that's the pharmacogenetics field. And uh, one size does not fit all. Just uh, let me give you mm, a couple of examples about uh, hypertensive treatment and the beta-1 adrenergic receptor polymorphism that has to be afforded and may explain why women do not respond to that and how the polymorphism also about beta-2 adrenergic receptor is also related to preterm labor or even the different response to labor analgesia. It will allow us in the future to tailor even more obstetric analgesia to what women, to the particular women needs. So it's an amazing uh, future for our specialty and for the uh, women's developments. I, I think we've been through quite a gamut of, uh, of dogmas in obstetric anesthesia. And this has shown us that in medicine, we have to be prepared for changes as the evidence comes out, the science updates, the guidelines get updated as we get more evidence. And we have to involve our patients and our colleagues so that we can challenge the beliefs and dogmas that can stick around for a very long time. Right, Amelia? Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely right. Absolutely right. So I want to um, thank everybody for listening to this episode and to remind you that ISAIC release monthly podcasts on ISAIC website and the various streaming platforms. And we hope that you will join us for the next one. And I want to say thank you from me, Carolyn. And Amelia, would you like to say some closing words? No, yes, thank you very much. And be careful if you're listening to the postcard driving. Don't be distracted. Thank you very much and see you soon. Thank you, everybody. And thank you for Asaic for hosting us today.